I'm Nancy. And I'm Catherine. And this is Side Effects. This is our final episode for the time being, the end of our first season. We spent the summer hearing from our six guests about how their lives have changed in response to the coronavirus pandemic. We're not going to lie. At times, it's been difficult to hear these stories. And other times, it's been incredibly heartening to know that nobody is going through this alone. For the six stories we've presented, there are millions more in America alone. And even though each story is unique, we hope you, the listener, have been able to find something in common with some of our guests. Normally, we try to give an update on our guests' lives from the past week. This week, instead, we're going to hear from them about how they ended up where they are, what they have coming next, and generally, what makes them keep going despite difficult circumstances. We'll start this week with someone who's actually found some good news in all of this, after months of bad news. Let's take a listen. It's been a big day, so orientation today, uh, met with my manager and our VP, and it, it's, it's like being back at work again. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. I don't know how people work like this. <laughs> Throughout the series, we followed Colin's journey as one of the millions of employees who faced challenges in the workplace as a result of COVID-19. Back in April, when Nancy and I first reached out to Colin, he had just found out that he'd been laid off from Enterprise. That day was coincidentally also one day away from his 25th anniversary at the company. So it's only apt that the timing of our final chat landed on day one of his new job as a security analyst at Equifax. So this morning I got up my uh, normal early morning time, uh, five o'clock in the morning, made breakfast, and started logging in and looking around and just trying to learn this new home that I'm going to be sitting at hopefully for a long time to come. Um, had two hours of new hire orientation, which was uh, interesting, awesome, and uh, uh, boy, a lot to eat at one time. It's like drinking from a fire hose. It's all new, you know. His journey to Equifax started about a month earlier. By then, he had already had a couple of interviews and was continuing to network and seek more suitable positions. A friend who worked with him at Enterprise mentioned the opening at Equifax, so he shuffled his resume over and from there went through several rounds of interviews. And then the following Tuesday, I got a call from the HR folks and uh, put it on speaker and uh, it was, uh, here's an offer, here's the job, here's the amount, here's the start date, and uh, you know, how's all that sound? And it's like, yeah, that, that, was, that was perfect and awesome and... Uh, Zoom downstairs to, uh, you know, electronically sign to accept the offer and all that kind of stuff. The timing of the offer couldn't have been better. Around the same time, Colin's wife Becky, who was also affected by the layoffs at Enterprise, heard back about a job with a medical company in town. Naturally, the both of them wanted to celebrate. Our last going out to dinner date when, when the COVID stuff started to hit was at Texas Roadhouse. And so that was sometime in March. Um... And so we thought, we're going to go get a nice, good steak, um, which we hadn't done in months. Because, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. So we're sitting on all this, right? Not, not trying to do anything crazy or extravagant. Sometimes when you're in the thick of things, it's difficult to realize how much underlying stress there is. It's like an iceberg. There's a tip that's visible, but so much more that goes unnoticed below. 
for Colin, the realization of just how hectic the past three months of job seeking had been wasn't fully apparent until he was able to step out of it by securing a new job. So Becky made an observation tonight about the weekend and about the, really the last several days. She said, I, I, I have noticed that there's laughter in the house again. And that was kind of a poignant thing, you know. Um, I guess when you're in the middle of it, you don't notice that you're sweating it so much, that you're so, you know, sort of clenched up and stressed. Uh, and then when it comes, it's like a dam burst. Unemployment is known to have mental and emotional effects on an individual. Among them include loss of identity and sense of purpose, and also anxiety about the future. But for many of the nearly 39 million Americans who have filed jobless claims since March, the pandemic has added an additional layer of stress, namely a feeling of loneliness and isolation. There was... Uh... Uh, a, a significant amount of challenge was sleeping and staying, staying, you know, staying asleep the whole the whole night. Uh, you know, you wake up thinking about what I need to do on my job search tomorrow. What do I need to do about resume writing or you know whatever whatever's part of that job search? I I think some of those middle of the night wake ups when one of us would find the other one awake too, uh, already, you know. 30 minutes into thinking about, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and what's going to happen tomorrow and all this kind of stuff. I think those times were the toughest um, because it was it was out of our control. There was not a thing we could do to help. Uh, all we could do is comfort. Often, these bigger life-altering events aren't just resolved when the circumstances change, but stay with us for a longer period of time. Think of a kid in middle school who's bullied. The emotional pain from those experiences often carry over into adulthood. Similarly, the experience of being laid off from a company that he had been at for 25 years had longer-term effects for Colin. Um, I think that the way this company feels is going to help, uh, you know, burn some demons. Frankly, that that you have when a when you go through a, a furlough and a layoff, one of the hardest things is is how do I how do I trust my company again? How do I trust to put my blood, sweat, and tears into the work and into the company, and you know, give up my time outside of work to you know occasionally do things that need to need to happen uh, to help the company benefit. In past recordings, Colin has described the whole process of parting with Enterprise as a sort of breakup. So, in some sense, this new job at Equifax was like starting a new relationship. And for now, he's proceeding cautiously. I don't want to get so wrapped up that something like this were to happen again, so this whole you know furlough and, and layoff thing um, would be so would hit me so hard. But on the other hand, I don't want to push that so far away, so so much at arm's length that I don't build good relationships and and do all those kinds of. Th- soft skill kinds of things that are sort of my bread and butter and sort of the way I like to operate. I think there's a, a little guardedness that comes with uh, kind of starting with a, new, with a new gig like this and a new set of folks. After the first day, Colin shares some of the new challenges and circumstances he's starting to uncover. For one, he's no longer at the same company as Becky. We're so accustomed to sort of chitter-chattering through the day and, you know, having the same cast of folks in our, in our conversation. And now it's not that way. So it's so she's growing a 
collection of folks that I don't know, and I'm growing a collection of folks that, that she doesn't know. It was just bizarre. And then there's the part about rediscovering and redefining value at a company. At Enterprise, Colin saw his value as knowing the ins and outs of Enterprise, having specific knowledge about the history of how things were built. There was a lot of tribal knowledge that he held. But now, at a new company, he's found that he's no longer the person that people go to for answers. You're not the person that knows how this system came to be and, and, and what its history is and why it works the way it does. Why is it quirky the way it is? Um, great example of that. Um, I'm on the help desk this uh, call with the help desk this morning trying to get something sorted out. And they're saying, okay, we well, need to go into this system and you need to click here and so forth. And I was clueless about what they were talking about. <laughs> that, um, and that's just part of that rookie experience. And it is definitely a different feel in your day when instead of things being sort of muscle memory, I'm having to actually think a little bit harder and listen a little more carefully because the things that I hear and encounter are different and they're not in my head yet. And that's, that's the rookie experience and that's where I'm at. Still, Colin sees a bright future ahead. When I asked him what the hardest part of this journey has been, from the day we first spoke to now, his first day at Equifax, he says it was keeping the faith that things would be okay. You know, there were some some days where I'm beating the bushes on LinkedIn. I got all these recruiters out there working for me and all these contract companies and not getting folks knocking on the door, right? Not getting those opportunities to come. And we'd see our fellow layoff ease, I guess, um, getting uh, new gigs and the like. And it's a little discouraging just to see that. Um, I, I think we knew in our hearts that our turn would come. Um but it was it was hard to um, sort of stay focused on the positivity that uh, that that something good was going to happen eventually, and it did, right? And all those stars lined up, and it was really it was really quite a quite a blessing that both of us uh, landed when we did, where we did, on the same day, and all that kind of stuff. It's just it's just it's just crazy how that lined up. I didn't know how this journey was going to end, and, I, and it's not ended yet. This is just the beginning of a new chapter. I think the thing that I would impress upon folks is that, you know, if you put in the time and put in the, the effort, it's going to happen. You're going to find a gig. You might even find the right gig. Collins says that he plans to continue posting regular video updates on his LinkedIn. Just as he's used the platform to share his job-seeking journey, he hopes to bring others along as he adjusts to his newfound role. If you're a job seeker and hoping for some positive words, or a new employee wanting to know others who are walking the same path, feel free to check out his videos on LinkedIn at Colin Wright. Next, we'll hear from a resident recent grad, Rudy Regalado, who's got a lot to celebrate, but still has to make the transition to the quote-unquote real world at a difficult time. Here's Nancy with his story. 
Rudy was a college senior at Sac State who officially graduated this past June. In our previous three episodes, we've covered his story of being a first-generation college student. He's had to deal with the difficult feelings of uncertainty and regret in knowing that his last semester at college would have to be taken from home, virtually, and that the graduation ceremony which he had been looking forward to for so long would have to take place online. Last we left off, Rudy had turned around his feelings towards the virtual commencement ceremony. He was grateful to even have one, and was excited to go back, in 2021, to participate in the in-person ceremony the following year. In our interview, Rudy took a moment to reflect on what graduating college and getting his diploma meant to him, the significance of his journey from the beginning all the way up until this point. I, I think it's really important for one, just to give myself, you know, like, just, you know, I'm Hispanic, so I mean, you could say like where I work, we call ourselves, you know, men of color because, you know, that's, that's what we are in society. So, I mean, it just felt great getting one, you know, obviously uh, getting more options for myself when it comes to terms of employment, da, da, da. But other than that, I mean, I'm just kind of happy about everything, you know, like my journey, my education, the people I've met along this path. Just, just so much things that I know now, thanks to that, not even because the school system and the classes, but just about myself. How to how to take care of my money? How to um, you know take care of my time? Self discipline, just a lot of things like that. The professors I met, like where I work, I wouldn't have been there if if I would never went to school and went to Sac State, you know. So it's, you know, I remember one time when we first moved into our place. It was me and my friend Adrian. Um, oh, he, he's my barber, my roommate, you know. Um, and we're just talking. And I'm like, damn, bro, like, I, I, this, is, this is my perspective two years ago. I was like, damn, bro, we really came way out here, going to pay rent and bills just to get a piece of paper. And he, he kind of, he told me, he told me, he's like, it's more than a piece of paper. He's like, there's, there's like an experience behind that. And, and I didn't really understand that, right? So, you know, where I'm, you know, kind of where, where I'm from, you know, straight up my mom, my dad, they know when he had like a diploma saying, I graduated from university. We have all this because I did that, you know, so we, I don't really know anything about that. Um, but now looking back, it's like, damn, like, I know what he was talking about. Um, so it just means the world. And, you know, it's crazy because I feel like my family in Mexico don't really understand the, the significance of this accomplishment. But, but it's all good because it keeps me humble in a way. You know, it knows I can, I knows, it knows I can accomplish more. So I think it's just the first step to whatever, wherever I'm going after this. So that's pretty much it, yeah. And finally, in June. After submitting his last assignments and taking his last finals, Rudy got to celebrate his accomplishment with the virtual graduation Sacramento State put on for its class of 2020. But the ceremony was less than stellar, even considering the lowered expectations Rudy had going into it. It was awkward and a bit conflicting. Um, honestly, it was kind of whack. Um, like, basically, they had, um, we all uploaded the picture of ourselves in kind of a caption. Uh, we were limited on the characters, so, we, you know, we were uh, constrained in that. And then it wasn't like an actual, it wasn't like a Zoom call that everybody logs on and it kind of goes like chronologically. It's, you kind of access things at your own pace, so. Um, they would have links to YouTube videos that you watch in a specific order, and then you just kind of click on your image, and you're able to just put that as a wallpaper on your desktop. But that's kind of how it was. Um, 
still grateful that happened though. Um, I almost teared up, but I couldn't. So, yeah, you, I didn't necessarily get the actual emotion and the feeling of a you know true graduation. Even if it wasn't the big exciting event Rudy initially imagined, the 30-person sleepover he envisioned at the start of his last school year, there were still small blessings to be happy and grateful for. And in the end, after the roller coaster of emotions he felt throughout the pandemic, Rudy realized there were things that were just out of his control, and all he could do was accept that and make the most of it. You know, my family threw like this celebration for me and my, my house, my mom's house. You know, my sisters come over, my nieces, my nephews, my brother, my sister, everybody. Um, they all came over and we celebrated. You know, I had pizza, I had wings, all the you know, all the good stuff. And you know, I felt happy in that moment. We were playing around, you know, they record videos of me and my robe and this and that, um, or gown, whatever it's called. And, you know, that was a good moment. Um, when it came to the actual celebration itself, um, I read beforehand in the email that we can actually access it whenever. So, I mean, if I want to go through that again, I could literally go on my student portal and kind of run it back again. But um, for the most part, I was just in my OIT hoodie. Some sweats. I was just kicking it home. It was me, my mom, my girlfriend, um, just watching it and, you know, kind of experiencing that. And that's it. I didn't really have no preparation or anything. It was just, uh, it kind of felt like something. I was low key excited. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it was what it was. Going back to our very first episode with Rudy. He told us about how he viewed himself as an extension of his mother's legacy, how he viewed his mother's journey from Mexico to the United States as the beginning of his own story. We asked him how his family reacted to his accomplishment and how he felt now. Well, my mom, you know, always tells me congratulations, give me a hug and all that. Um, you know, my little brother and sister also, you know, kind of do the same. My, my family does too, but the way I see it is... I feel like they don't understand the the actual magnitude of this accomplishment. You know, like, maybe it's because we are, well, you know, especially them are from Mexico, so they don't necessarily know what it took to get it done, you know. Um, or maybe they do in a sense, but I feel like, I don't know, I feel like you kind of have to go through it to actually know what it's like um, and how good that accomplishment feels. So I feel like, so I feel like, um, they did what they could to congratulate me and tell me all this, but I feel it, it didn't give me validation. Um, and I'm not saying I need validation because I can only give that to myself. So, I mean, it just felt good, like, celebrating that moment. And it was mostly of a thing for me. I just felt great that I accomplished that and know that this is just one step, you know, closer to to the goal. And what does the immediate future look like for Rudy? A few weeks after graduating, he found out that his employer, IYT, or the Improve Your Tomorrow organization would be bringing him on full-time. Another big leap forward in pursuing his purpose. You know, this last year was, was a, definitely a learning experience. You know, I had a, a lot of growing pains, but a lot of celebrations as well. And, you know, I developed a lot of good relationships with my mentees, my students. Uh, I got a lot of love for them. And I think what I'm looking forward to the most is, is working with the team. You know, whatever my position may look like, if it's, if it's you know, the leader, if it's, if it's where I get opportunities to lead, um, I'm just very excited about that because we didn't have a team last year, and that was really tough. Uh, we did, 
uh, but the pieces are kind of uh, rearranging as of right now. So I'm looking forward to getting with a team, working with people, and, and you know, develop relationships in that school because I, you know I see a lot of hope and prosperity for that school and my students. So I just want to see everybody thrive. I know that this school year, uh, so I know school semester. I don't know about the year yet, but I know it's going to look a lot different because of you know the coronavirus and everything. So. It's kind of um, like though. So school, I'm finally done with school. So I want I have something to fully invest myself in, and I'm really looking forward to what I can do and what I can create out of that situation. Rudy's time in Sacramento isn't over, like he originally thought it was when he headed home in March. In fact, it's just starting. I say for my short-term future is learning all the skills and experience, all the skill is using all the skills and experiences that I have up to this point to keep, you know, pouring into my students, pouring into their families, and hopefully, you know, make a difference, you know, break the cycles of negativity and create more cycles of positivity, more and more of that into these Sacramento communities, because we all know this shelter in place is hard, let alone dealing with low income, you know, so many uh, issues, you know, um, uh, you know, food scarcity, uh, disparity of education, you know, so many things. So what I'm really looking forward to is, you know, making a difference. I really think that I have, what's the proper word, equip myself with skills that I need to, to help in that. Um, and also just live with mommy, my best friend, Mark. You know, I think that's going to be very fun. We'll be able to learn and grow from each other and also just have a good time. Like, I feel very comfortable sharing my emotions with him and so does he. So I feel like it'll be a positive experience for us. And just being in Sacramento, you know, I, I love the city. Um... I love the city, you know, and then we'll just see where it takes us. After the whirlwind of graduating during the pandemic and everything that came with that, Rudy wrote a post on Instagram summarizing his thoughts on his college experience. He shared his caption with us. So I said, it was a hell of a journey to get here, and it definitely wasn't easy. Growing up in a small town to the beautiful green city of Sacramento, the trip has been nothing short of immaculate. Sac State is where I found my current purpose, and that's priceless. I met so many people who helped create this dope experience. So many long nights, so many long days, but I would not trade that for anything. My ultimate message is to not be afraid of the ugly. Um, yeah, the ultimate message is not be afraid of the ugly. In my, on my, uh, my ulti, uh, in the, my last picture in the collage, I included a very real picture of myself being sick and tired during finals week. Just to show y'all, not every moment is beautiful. It's a real struggle, but it's really worth it. Nothing short of grateful. And then I said, first generation, hashtag victory lap. Rudy Regalado, a class of 2020 graduate, and now a full-time mentor at IYT. Our next guest, Jordan Flowers, is also going through a transition like Rudy. And like Rudy, he's shaped his own career path in many ways. Of course, Jordan's path is that which will hopefully affect not only his future, but his peers as well. As of last week, I did get an email saying that I missed too many days of work and I would be terminated again. I'm still working with the HR team, but they're not doing as much. So I'm still, I I like to call it a day-to-day guy because you never know what's going to happen now. Jordan, a robotics technician at Amazon JFK 8 and one of the co-organizers of the recent warehouse strikes against Amazon, is currently fighting his termination with the company. He's no longer working at the warehouse 
but is fighting to stay on the company's roster for reasons involving their legal case against Amazon. A lot has happened over these past few months for Jordan. For one, he and his strike co-organizers, Chris Smalls, Derek Palmer, and Jill Brayson, have founded a group called TCOEW, or the Congress of Essential Workers. According to their website, the Congress of Essential Workers is a secure, collaborative network of essential workers and allies fighting for the elimination of billionaires, wealth redistribution, and protecting the working class from exploitative CEOs like Jeff Bezos. The group of four have traveled all over the country in the past few weeks, leading protests and strikes to call attention to the injustices plaguing America right now. So we did Jersey first, because that's Chris's hometown. And then two weeks ago, we did New York City. We protested in front of Jeff Bezos' house. And then uh, we went to 42nd Street, and then we met with the Breonna Taylor rally. And ever since then, we've been working with the rally for Breonna Taylor. We also host protests for George Floyd, for justice. And we're just attaching ourselves to the Black Lives Matter now. So now we're going to Washington. We're going to L.A. Next, we're going to Jacksonville, Florida. And we're just going to keep being mobile until we show every state that you guys can come step out and support us. On August 27th, Jordan and TCOEW also staged a strike in Washington, D.C., in front of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos' $23 million mansion. The group has been fighting to call attention to Amazon's poor COVID-19 working conditions in their warehouses for months, but little has changed. One was cleaning the facilities. They partially doing that. Uh, they're still clean. They're cleaning the facilities, but they're doing it as we're working. Uh, the end of the TOT and rate policy. And those are the two major things right now through our demands. TOT, or time off task, is a system Amazon uses to measure how much time workers spend not working. Through the system, Amazon is able to monitor how many packages a worker scans every hour. And if they fail to meet their quota, Amazon issues them a warning. After three warnings, harsh consequences are in store for the employee, who may even be fired. The Verge published a report on TOT and discovered that three quarters of workers avoid using the bathroom to prevent falling below quota. More recently, Jordan and his team are asking for more free time to clean their stations, wash their hands, and generally take the precautions needed for the sake of health and safety. But there's others that are like, we need the $2 raise. We need more PPE. Uh, We need more concern on safety. We need more equipment. We need workers to be tested. Because till this day, there's people still testing positive. Uh, Not even in New York, but... It's, it's really it's really low in New York, I should say that. It's really low in New York, but there's other states like Texas and Florida that, need, that these workers need to be tested in. Uh, an, an, a new demand now is we had some workers die during the pandemic. Amazon's gonna, only going to write a letter to the family saying that we feel sorry for your loss. Despite TCOEW's numerous efforts, Jordan told us that Amazon has repeatedly failed to give them the time of day and listen to their needs. We asked Jordan what he would say to Bezos and fellow Amazon executives if he had the chance. That these stunts, these lies, gotta stop. It's 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 unethical. It's 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 just you're not open to your people. You're you're seeing a lot of stuff, but yet we haven't seen that. 
we have a lot of people still saying that, as I mentioned, people are still testing positive. People, you know, are having hard having a hard time getting quarantine pay. Um, they, that all needs to stop. If you send someone home that day, they should get at least an extra five hours pay. They don't got to get the full ten or twelve hours, but they should at least work with a half a day pay or whatever hours they worked, and then they feel like they didn't feel good. They should get only held accountable for an extra five hours. But otherwise, these these workers need to be more treated fairly. You might remember that in our very first episode with Jordan, he recalled his initial excitement when he found out he would be working for Amazon. Two years back, at 19 years old, Jordan thought the job was a golden opportunity with its above minimum wage pay, benefits, stock options, etc. But what would Jordan think of that decision now? Changed my mind completely. Uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I was 19. I wasn't in school. Uh, I had school debt to pay off. And I, I didn't really have my license. I don't want to even say it like that. But, uh, you know, having, having, having some type of city job, you would have to apply in weeks and years. And even waiting for years for a city job, I would have to find another job to get until my city job calls me. So to have a job like Amazon that offers medical, dental, and vision at the doorstep, to offer me a stock unit at the doorstep, to offer me uh, school training for my CDL license, to offer you stuff that a city job could offer until your city job calls you, is the golden ticket for a 19-year-old. And you know, it's it's like the best thing you'll ever hear. But over time, it starts to degrade your body and make you feel weak. And, you know, you, you'll start quitting or you'll start taking personal leaves to get away for a while. And then during the pandemic, it just showed its true colors. Now, you know, you had everyone that's working for you for five, six, seven years that's saying Amazon is the best company they ever worked for in their life that are now quitting. There's people that are coming in that are one-year employees that are quitting because they, they're tired of that stress. We've covered extensively how Jordan spends his time at work, and even his time away from work, advocating for workers' rights. He's either at his shifts, organizing strikes, or giving interviews like this one to speak out about these issues. So, what does he do on his rare days off, his actual days off? Well, <laughs> New, York City start, New York City opened up, so... I'm outside again. I'm playing basketball. Um, as simple as walking around, hanging out with family. I actually went to my cousin's house last night for the, for the first time I haven't seen in a while. And I mean, I didn't get home till like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, but you know, it's, it was just the quality time I get to spend with my family that I don't have to feel that I can't travel because there's COVID out there and I don't want to either contract it or contract it to my family. Or I even got to even see my nephew two weeks ago. Three weeks ago, yeah, two or three weeks ago to see my nephew, who's only two, that I, sh- I, I feel more secure that they've been cleaning the train systems, that I'm able to travel again, do what I want to do inside New York City. And even having outside dining that I can even go with my family, my friends, or go out to eat with my organization. Just being, just being the fact that I'm able to go outside and be active again is, is just amazing. Uh, so it's, it's really whatever now. It's, it's from traveling to go see family outside to play basketball or 
even there's, there's some nights where I just sit on the beach, just have my speaker, have some food, just listen to the water, just think about just think about personal stuff later on, think about the organization, how it can benefit, and move on, the pros and cons of what our next action can be. As small as, small as that sitting on the beach, I'm, I'm grateful for doing that. We wanted to know what it meant to Jordan to be opposing Amazon after all this time working for them and how it felt to change his mind about the company that first hired him. Back then, I would never think I'd be doing this now, uh, but to, to be able where I'm at in my position, uh, it feels like I'm, I'm helping not just myself and not just my associates and uh, warehouse workers in Staten Island, but we're talking about across the world now that just me, Chris, Derek, and Gerald, the four people that is changing the world for the Amazon policies is, is a, a major, major thing. So even with those lawsuits and that we're, even that it's not a major, major win, the small wins always lead to a major win. So all our small wins right now will lead to a major win. Jordan, an Amazon robotics technician, a leader and co-organizer of the first Amazon warehouse strike in response to COVID-19, and now co-founder of the Congress of Essential Workers. Next, we'll hear from someone who also founded her own organization to take matters into her own hands and help support her company. Here's Joshua, our producer, with a story. One of Ali's most remarkable traits is her unwavering capacity for other people. She's brought refugees into her family, started Food on the Table, and a nonprofit in Atlanta. She knows her neighborhood deeply, and she would put her feet on the ground to protest for Black lives. It's not a stretch to say that Ali's actions demonstrate a deep and rare respect for the value of each human life. To close out Ali's story, we wanted to talk about Food on the Table's future and share her reflections and her experiences in a life of service. The conversation begins in March, when Food on the Table was just getting started. In the beginning, there was a certain amount of adrenaline based out of fear, because we didn't know how this was going to go. And this felt like a way that I could help my neighborhood and community. And so there was an adrenaline from that. And one of my friends did say, like, I, I'm worried that you won't be able to keep this pace. And I and I know myself because I've dealt with crises before. And I said, I can do it for two months at this pace and then I can't do it any longer. And so we'll discuss, how is she able to sustain food on the table for such a long time? And what is she up to now? When it comes to crisis work, whether it's those experiencing homelessness, um, which is my day job, or people experiencing a pandemic. I think there's an emotional toll because every decision you make has a weight. Whether you are bringing groceries to a single mom who three of the kids and her have COVID, and you know what she, or you imagine what she's going through, or you're saying no, even if it's for all the right reasons. You've got the best boundaries. There's still an emotional cost. Having to consistently make heavy decisions that impacts people's lives showed Ali the value of boundaries in sustaining her ability to continually do mutual aid work. 
And there's a constant feeling of, I, I wish I could do more. I mean, through 20 years. And a lot of times when I was younger, I did do a lot more that wasn't based on boundaries in my health, whether it be emotional, mental, um, financial. Um, I feel like that was a learned lesson of a lot of mistakes of learning those boundaries. I don't know. I feel like every day, I feel like I, I've never done enough. <laughs> um, it is a constant battle in my mind of where is too much and where am I trying to be the savior? I, I don't need to fix everyone, every problem. What is in front of me today that I'm supposed to do? Um, I think there's a lot of battle in my mind over those lines. What Ali is referring to is sometimes known as the savior complex, a compulsive urge to help everyone, often at the detriment of their own well-being. It can be hard when you're a perfectionist too. So how does Ali try to combat this? One of my favorite quotes is G.K. Chesterton. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Um, I think that's a great quote. And a lot of my life has been learning based on failure. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I would, um, you know, I founded this nonprofit Lazarus in 2000. But I would give out large sums of money trying to get people rent. Um, but I was working full time. And so I wouldn't be able to go to the leasing office. I probably did it 10 times and I didn't have a lot of money and it never went to rent. Um, so that that's a boundary I would probably reconsider now. I would serve ridiculous hours week in, week out, because I really wanted to save everybody. Um, and there was a genuine, I wanted to see people off the streets of Atlanta. But I think there also was, I have a car, home, and job, so you should listen to me because I know what I'm doing. Um, I would go into dangerous places all the time. Um, Fortunately, nothing ever happened. So I just, I have different boundaries now having learned through this. Um, but a lot of it is uh, saying no to things I just can't do. Yeah. Eventually, the relentless crossing of mental and physical boundaries did lead to burnout for Ali. It was a lesson in that even if you have the best intentions and are physically able to put yourself out there, there are still limitations that must be respected. Burnout is especially with time, burnt like when you just cannot move another moment, and that feeling of burnout like you just that weariness you kind of know, okay, I've gone, I've done too much, and I've gone too far. One of my favorite stories about burnout was um, the fall of uh, 2009. I had a friend, his name's Larry, um, he was experiencing homelessness. And he had a, a medical condition um, that would flare up. And he was sleeping outside at the time. And this is someone who I love dearly. And he, I mean, he attended my wedding. I see, see him every time in Atlanta. Um, we were very close. And he's sleeping outside. And I would give him money to get a room at one of the shelters where you can get your own room. It's very dignifying to have your own room. And so I wanted him to have that. So I did that for two months and I was also, I mean, there were a lot of decisions like that at the moment and I was working a lot day in, day out. And there's weight to everything you decide when you're working with those who are experiencing homelessness. 
And this same friend, Chris, said, why don't, since you're going out of town for Christmas, why don't you turn off your phone? Just turn it off completely um, for the entire time you're gone. And I did that. And when I got back, Larry had found a job and a place to live that he could do with his condition. I was kind of putting a Band-Aid by giving him the money week in, week out. And yes, my I meant well. I love this person. And he was sleeping on cardboard with a medical condition. I hated it. But I also somewhere crossed the line because he came up with a much better long-term solution. And I just went in there and like, I'm going to pay the $9 week in, week out. Like not even trying to walk alongside. Um, I think it's things like that. When I look back in hindsight is when I learn about boundaries. Uh, and I don't think they're clear cut. I think it's individual to individual, every single story, every single situation. Um, and so I still learn about boundaries even to this day. And the boundaries that Allie developed over the last 20 years helped her understand exactly how she can sustainably maintain a project like Food on the Table for herself. We're just going to see what the need is and how we can serve our city. So whether it's officially food on the table or it's just me running some errands, I mean, we're going to be serving our city for as long as we need. Food on the Table still operates for D.C., with hundreds of volunteers still making deliveries every week. They'll be around for as long as the pandemic is a problem. But as the initial COVID crisis has passed, many other nonprofits and mutual aid groups have been able to scale up to match the need in D.C. As for Ali personally, she's slowly transitioning away from food on the table. All of her kids are going back to school. She'll be keeping an eye on Lazarus. And plus, she'll be promoting a book that was released just this past May. So I also write children's books. Um, and this... In May, we did um, a parody book for parents, um, which is actually really timely now that we're all in a pandemic and at home with our kids a lot. It's called Mommy Didn't Say That. It's for those moments when parents say unsavory things in front of their kids. Um, and it's quite funny, I think. I'm <laughs> just so, yes. So I'll be doing whatever promotion you can do during a pandemic, um, which is not doing book readings and not doing uh, book signings. (laughs) So we'll see how that works. And for the very last time, we asked Ali on her reflections on the entire experience. It's been an honor to serve my city. I, I think all of us will say that. It's been an honor to serve the people that we've gotten to know. I've gotten to know a lot of new people, whether it be reporters, senior citizens, um, undocumented neighbors. Um, It's been an honor to share a part of the story in their lives in such random ways, too. I mean, some email, some saw me on the news. But there's been a lot of warm feelings underneath the fear of what is going on. Allie McGill, founder of Food on the Table and Lazarus. Next, we'll hear from Winsulting. 
In the previous episodes with Jonathan and Jerry, the CEO and COO of OneSalting, we focused mostly on their growth and activities as a company. We also took some time last week to talk to some of their mentees to learn what influence OneSalting had on them and how they were dealing with the uncertainty of when they would start their job. In this week's episode, we'll take some time to focus on what Jonathan and Jerry are up to individually and their plans for the future. I'm surprised I left corporate because I always, in the beginning, I always told myself that I'd stay in corporate forever and that it was my dream job when in reality it wasn't my dream, it was other people's dreams to get there. But then it translated to my dream. Back in March, Cisco, the company that Jonathan was working at, had a round of layoffs. It wasn't big enough to make a splash in the news, but it nonetheless affected Jonathan, who at that point had been there for just several months. The news, though, didn't phase him all that much, and he saw in it a new possibility for himself. I had to make a decision because OneSulting was just growing exponentially, and I couldn't balance the two. I just decided that it was time, and yeah, it's just been kind of a blessing in disguise, as I say, to just do it full time because now I just run on my own schedule, basically. Um, And I've always wanted to be kind of my own boss and just make really good decisions and help make an impact on people. So instead of diving into recruiting for his next job, he decided to transition full time to consulting. I realized my dream was just to help turn underdogs into winners and help people be successful in their careers. So that's why I was like, okay, like I'm going to make the decision to leave corporate, which I wasn't really expecting. What just happened? Reflecting upon his journey as an undergrad at UC Riverside, where he would spend almost 40 hours a week job hunting and vying for a spot at one of the major tech companies, Jonathan realized that his intentions back then were somewhat misplaced. The perception of people who come from these like smaller schools and non-traditional backgrounds is that if I get into the top company, people will respect me and look at me at a higher lens rather than not. And why I say that is because I've experienced it myself. Like... I, I felt superior because I would hear these other, my friends or other people, and they would say that they were working in these companies, and I'd be like, oh, wow, I work at Google. Oh my gosh, Google's great. Well, why? I talk about Google for like 20 minutes. Because I remember I have conversations like that, and I judge people based off their job rather than who they were as a person and their character. When in reality, a company doesn't justify your work ethic or justify who you are. Nowadays, with his work with OneSalting, Jonathan comes across many students who have a similar mindset who see working at a big tech company as the be-all, end-all, and who treat anything short of that as a failure on their part. The mentality is harmful both because it creates a sense of insufficiency when they're rejected, as well as a sense of superiority when they actually are accepted. If you're only working at a company just to work there for a name or just for people to see you in a lens where you're superior than them, then that's faulty and it's going to affect your personal life too as well because then you'll feel like you're also superior to everybody you speak with. In many ways, both Jonathan and Jerry are trying to encourage job seekers to look more broadly and consider companies that may not necessarily be name brand. For Jonathan, it's getting people to acknowledge and know him for his work with consulting rather than his employment history. Like when working at Google and these big companies, they're like, oh, you're the guy from Google um, who came from UCR, right? And I'm like, yeah. But then no one would say, hey, you're the guy from consulting who helped turn underdogs into winners, right? No one would ever say that. But nowadays, everyone says the latter part rather than this is the guy who worked at Google San Francisco. They say this is the CEO of Monsulting. Jerry, too, has been sharing stories on LinkedIn of his own personal job-seeking journey, and specifically his recent move away from his current employer, Google, to a different company. The biggest thing I was looking for is bigger scope of work. 
because I think at my time at Google, I for sure had that earlier on. But as my team grew, the opportunities that we had for the business that we we're working on suddenly got narrowed. And so, you know, after six people joined the team, I pulled my head out and I was like, huh, this role feels a lot more different than what I remember it to be, which forced me to say, you know what, I don't know if this team is right for me anymore. Therefore, I started looking internally, realized that there's really nothing else for me there. And so I started looking elsewhere uh, externally and made sure that a lot of the roles that I interviewed for, that the, that the scope is what I was looking for. When he announced on LinkedIn that he was leaving Google, the response was one of shock. I think a lot of people, when they looked at my story, they were like, dang. Jerry is someone that I always envisioned as someone who is with Google, the Google boy, right? Like the gold, the golden Google boy, whatever that is, right? But at the end of the day, most people, I think it understood that, hey, roles are never just something that you just do once and you are there forever. As he started looking and interviewing for new roles, Jerry made it a point to share genuinely what he was going through. He posted stories of rejection that drove home the point that roles in companies are not a guarantee of your future success or an indicator of your value as a person. One of the things I really try to do on LinkedIn is to normalize that, right? To show people that, hey, even though I have Google on my resume, even though I've gotten multiple promotions, I still fail. I still get rejected. With Jonathan full-time on OneSalting and Jared treating OneSalting as his interim full-time job, both are adjusting to what we might call their personal new normals. And they have big plans. Yeah, so number one, to launch our course, which we've been talking about forever, but we haven't been able to record it due to COVID. So we're hoping that that takes off. Um, another one as well is to uh, launch our accelerator program. Uh, another one too as well is to you know, just get, hopefully get featured in uh, some news outlets to see that the work what we're doing, um, just to spread our word and, and show people what we're doing. Um, and then last, of course, uh, to make sure all of our mentees and people that we're teaching all get jobs. So hopefully we'll be able to achieve that and of course, grow our community even larger than it already is. The new, the new chapter is definitely making OneSalting into its own living creature, right? I think right now it's a, an infant that's being supported by both me and Jonathan. In other words, if Jonathan and I were to leave, it would probably wean off and die. But if, what if we made it into a thing where if Jonathan and I were to step away from it for a month, it would still be fine. Right. That's the next phase of consulting. And I'm really excited to see what that looks like because I do feel like we found our niche. We found a list of huge supporters. So how do we continually do what we're doing today, but continue, continue to really make sure that we build consulting into its own little person. <laughs> I guess that's the best way to describe it. <laughs> Jonathan Javier, and Jerry Lee of OneSalting. You can check out their work at OneSalting.com or at OneSalting on LinkedIn. 
Next, our last guest of the season, Jenny Sai. Let's take a listen. <laughs> the other day, talking to my roommates and being like, man, when our kids ask us, like, what were you doing? Like, what were you feeling during this pandemic? We're just going to be like, well, we watched Hamilton six times in a day and drank a lot of margaritas. I think any of us, given the chance, would be spending the free time we have under coronavirus exactly the same way Jenny does. But of course, that's just a sliver of what Jenny actually goes through in her day-to-day. As a first-year medical resident, the bulk of her time is spent in the hospital treating patients. Something we haven't discussed as much also is how much time Jenny spends writing. She's written articles for Scientific American, The Washington Post, The New England Journal of Medicine, basically everywhere that comes to mind when you think of what smart people read. And in that writing, she's thinking about the role of race in medicine. Of course, we have discussed that a lot in this podcast with her, and coronavirus has really brought to light a lot of those issues in ways we never could have predicted, unless you're someone like Jenny. I I think in another way, this is really concretized that this, this really is going to be a lifelong thing for me. I think it's so clear that we just have so, so much work to do. And part of making this work lifelong is understanding and in some ways appreciating that triumphs are really hard won, that a lot of it is going to be slow um, and not to accept that it should be slow or not to accept and, and say that incremental change is okay, but just to kind of sit with and realize that This isn't something that you win and move on from. This is, it's just going to be a continuous process. You know, I think we're seeing more than ever the kind of inequities and deeply, deeply, almost absurd inequities, you know, in every turn and every new newspaper page. And it's not that they're new, it's just that we're seeing them more. And so I I often think about this a lot and it's why I, I think... I'm really interested and passionate about education as the side of justice that I want to work in. So much of it is about kind of peeling that curtain back or peeling that veil back and seeing that it's horrible and finding ways to motivate yourself and kind of steal yourself to keep pulling back that curtain and keep pulling back that curtain for more and more people. Inequities. We've talked a lot about this with Jenny about how those have manifested in medicine and how they've only worsened during the pandemic. So yes, the future is looking bleak now. What's going to happen in the coming weeks and months? Even next year feels like a far off distant land. So what does that very uncertain future look like for Jenny? She gave two answers, the first of which is very relatable. I I just can't wait until I'm responsible enough to have a dog. Uh, a lot of people are getting these quarantine puppies and I've been spending a lot of time following really cute rescue puppies on Instagram and I know I'm not responsible enough for it now Um, and I think residency makes it hard and and part of it is you know I'm sure if I dedicated it dedicated myself to caring about something other than myself uh, I would do an okay job at it hopefully but I'm just I'm not there yet. I would like to have a yard where this dog hypothetically can run uh, 
and B, a happy dog. And I just want to make sure I can make sure it's a happy dog if I choose to care for a dog. I really hope in my future I get to adopt a dog. <laughs> I didn't. I, I'm, I think hopefully that will be a definite in my future at some point. <laughs> and the other thing Jenny is hoping for her future, it takes a little bit of background info first. There's this this concept that I think about a lot called the third space. And the idea kind of is, you know, your first space is your house or your home. Second space is work. And in a lot of societies, there's traditionally a third space, which is, you know, kind of classically defined as a place that's easy to get to. It's unpretentious. It doesn't cost a lot. It's sort of like a community watering hole where you can stop in for 20 minutes, stop in for three hours, but run into or encounter people and socialize with people without necessarily making specific plans. I think my dream is to build a third space and to kind of facilitate and promote one. I always think, you know, could I have a home that lets its doors kind of open or is like attached to a community center where people can organize, where people can convene, where people can drink cheap wine and, you know, hang out and just stop by. Um, I think that really is a dream of mine. If you're Jenny, there are so many things piling up at any given moment. Personal responsibilities, difficult shifts at the hospital, the crushing weight of the pandemic, and the lasting effects that the racial inequalities will have a long time after the pandemic is over. So how does Jenny not lose hope? We asked her, and just a heads up, you're going to hear some questions from our producer, Sam, in this next clip. Here's Jenny. I think I feel very, very inspired by the ways that I've seen generosity play out in front of me. Um, but also very beaten down by the ways that selfishness has also been exemplified to me. Maybe this is uh, too big of a question for you to, to, to answer comfortably, but I'm just wondering, are you, are you generally like hopeful for the future? <laughs> um, this is something that I've really struggled with. Um, and it was around 2016, after Trump got elected, that I found myself asking this a lot. And it wasn't like an explicit thing, like, I'm going to ask everyone that I see, you know, this question. It was, it would just slip out because it was what I was constantly, constantly thinking about. Um, but that year in particular, every time I hung out with people or caught up with a friend or went to a talk or met somebody new, I would ask them, like, do you still have hope? And I think something that really, has compelled me and convinced me to think differently it comes from this idea of what does it mean to be a hope instead of having hope. Um, and I can remember, you know, having conversations or having interactions with people in my life. Professor Nancy Krieger is an epidemiologist at Harvard who is just, she commands, I think, so much respect and is so incisive and inspiring and I took a class from her when I was at Harvard and I remember thinking you know she is a hope it doesn't matter if she has hope or not and I I don't pretend to know um and it doesn't matter if I have hope or not but she is hope she is a hope and she manifests that every day 
And I think about so many of my friends in that way. So it, it doesn't matter. And I think, again, I can you know, name so many women in my life who do this for me. Um, and it's really changed, I think, the way I think about it, where I want to think less about, is there hope or do I have hope? But how do I learn more to be a greater and deeper hope for other people in the way that these women have been for me? You think you are that for somebody? I don't know. <laughs> I, I would like to hope so, you know, I'm, I'm trying. I have no idea. But again, I think the work is to try nonetheless. For the last time, Jenny Sai, a first year medical resident in Connecticut. Thanks so much to all of our guests for speaking with us for the past few months. It's been a pleasure to get to know you, even when we're keeping our distance. And thanks to our listeners for sticking with us and tuning in every other week. We hope that you found something to hold on to in these stories. Lastly, a big shout out to our team. SideFX is produced by Catherine and Nancy Shu, Joshua Chan, and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Our marketing team is Katrina Wu and Miranda Pan who have worked relentlessly on the gorgeous graphics for our social feeds. Special thanks to Joseph Kovarubius, Tarakola, Jason Lee, and Amy Shen for their contributions to this podcast as well. We hope to return to your podcast feed soon. Keep an eye out on our social media at SideEffectsPod, that's at S-I-D-E-E-F-F-E-C-T-S-P-O-D, for news and updates. And until then, stay safe and healthy.